everybody, this is Dr. David Banner, author of Frame Shifting, A Path to Wholeness. This is chapter nine called, Where Do We Go From Here? Which is a very interesting question at this point. One of the things I found out as I was writing this book and also as I was going through the processes that I described in this book is trying to decide what my goal is in all this. Um, I believe that enlightenment is a stage where there is no separate self. In other words, I believe there is no identity separate from the wholeness of all life. And I've talked about that before in this podcast. Uh, I, I'll repeat this quote, which I just happen to love. And this is from the developer of Avatar, and here's the quote. When you adopt the viewpoint that there's nothing that exists that's not part of you, that there's no one who exists who's not part of you, that any judgment you make is self-judgment, and that any criticism you level is self-criticism, you will wisely extend to yourself an unconditional love that will be the light of the world. To me, that pretty much nails it. Uh, there is no separate self in reality. <coughs> so we have to, we have to uh, realize that when we're at that level, there's no want or need. Everything is attracted at the right time in the flow of life's rhythms. Jealousy, resentment, anger, pride, gluttony, avarice, greed, lust, all of the Enneagram passions. Um, all these become irrelevant. Do you know anybody at this level? No, I don't either. There is one gentleman named Jeb McKenna who claims to have reached this level. And according to his account, the total transcendence of one's ego is a somewhat arduous and even a painful process as the ego fights to keep its stranglehold on your consciousness. Uh, if, if you're totally dedicated, he argues, you can achieve this level of awareness and enlightenment. Will the average person be interested in this? Well, probably not. Uh, however, there are many levels of ego attachment. I believe it's possible through the tools I've explained in this book to reach higher and higher levels of what McKenna calls the comfortable dream of the ego. That's an interesting way to put this. Somewhat contrary to what McKenna teaches, Course in Miracles says it's possible to reach enlightenment in this lifetime by a process of forgiveness and giving up on grievances and attack thoughts. Okay, one of the meanings seminal meanings in The Course in Miracles is, I could see peace instead of this. How can this be? Well, the nature of the ego is separation, and therefore the result is discord and conflict. Over what appear to be scarce resources, rewards, status, through the act of forgiveness and the giving up of attack thoughts against yourself and other people, we come to see that the other is really a projection from ourselves. The other is literally one with us. 
realizing this, forgiveness becomes a natural manifestation. Attack thoughts only arise when there appears to be somebody out there that the vulnerable separate ego self must defend against. Well, if you're part of the whole and there, you give up the separate self, there's nothing to defend against. Much of what passes for spiritual growth these days are really tools to polish up the ego, make it happier, but still in control. What I mean here is that as one advances up the ladder of spiritual growth, but one becomes less reactive, less selfish, more inclusive, more loving, more peaceful. But they still experience themselves as a separate self or identity. I sense there are many such levels of advancement. Uh, Ken Wilber, who's a very famous psychologist and sociologist, among other things, articulates a seven-level uh, growth of personal consciousness. He calls them the magic, mythic, egocentric, traditional, modern, postmodern, and integral. Well, he himself operates at the integral level by his self-report. He's been a meditator for 35 years, but he still apparently experience himself as Ken Wilbur. Jeb McKenna still uh, experienced himself as Jeb McKenna. Well, these are separate identities. So maybe the goal isn't to totally transcend the ego, but maybe just put it in the background so it doesn't run our lives. For me personally, living an integral life is a passion, and I'm keen to use any tool that will bring me closer to that state. This journey I call my life has been a series of experiences that have broadened my view of reality, but I'm painfully aware that the journey is not finished. There are times when my ego gets in the way of what I'm trying to say. Of course, Miracle teaches that everything in the worldview of the ego is exactly backwards from the reality of oneness. Egos see separation everywhere. They judge things as right, wrong, good, bad, things to avoid, things to want. None of this is true in the state of oneness because everything is differentiations of the one spirit which runs everything and there's no need to judge or defend. Thoughts, concepts, preoccupations of the personality, including all nine Enneagram types, are all products of the ego. Why are these important to the ego? Well, the ego state is unreal, and at some level, the ego knows this. It sees reality as a bottomless void, which if it entered and lived in, it would mean it's certain death, which happens to be true. Two of the Enneagram personality types are particularly attuned to the void. Type 5, the observer, and type four, the tragic romantic. These types know of the vulnerability of their ego identities. Other types are less aware of the ego's precariousness. <clears throat> Excuse me, the five withdraws from life and experience. Their actual skin feels permeable. If you talk to a five, you'll ask them about this and they'll tell you. They must withdraw to protect themselves from 
life. They need to protect themselves and charge up their batteries. They tend to be observers of life, protected by their egos. The four also engages in life, but can have a very strong victim and drama orientation. And as a result, many times when they apparently love and lose, they create drama. But ultimately, all personality types are fictitious identities that the ego constructed to help the small child survive the so-called vagaries of childhood and grow into a defended adulthood. Interestingly, but not coincidentally, what is required for a life of innocence and abundance is to trust the pulsations of life itself as it moves through its creative cycles. This is exactly what the ego does not want to do. The ego wants to call the shots, to get what it wants and when it wants it. The chances of this being in alignment with life's natural pulsations are almost zero. So, discord, pain, death, injury, despair, all abound in the mind-created world. There needs to be some explanation of this. I'm assuming that there exists a grand template for life. I'm calling this infinite intelligence. This intelligence is animating all life everywhere in the universe, presumably. This means that everything is perfectly coordinated to work together as a whole. Think about your human body. Your pancreas doesn't try to be your liver. Your knee doesn't try to be your hip, and so forth. Everything in your body is perfectly coordinated to work smoothly together. So, when we are disconnected with the pulsation of life itself, we cannot help but be out of sync with the greater rhythms of life as they manifest in the world of form. So, in your ego identity, or by definition, out of sync with the greater rhythms of life. One example of this is how clock time has disrupted our lives. When we, uh, we have these circadian rhythms which govern our internal clock, and for those of you that ever worked on shift work at odd hours, you'll know this experience of being out of sync. Or when you take a trip to Europe or the Far East and you get off the plane, you're out of sync. Why? Because your internal circadian rhythms are off. Individual, individual in, indigenous people respect the natural rhythms of life. Uh, Native Americans, Aboriginal people, and so forth. These people respect the rhythms. We North Americans tend not to respect it. We want to call all the shots, including 24-7. <laughs> Sleep and Sleep loss, deprivation have become natural, national epidemics in our culture. There's an epidemic of sleep deprivation. But the ego is unwilling to give its stranglehold on our consciousness and our behavior. Several spiritual teachers have recommended ways to transcend the ego. Helen Palmer of the Enneagram School of the Narrative Tradition suggests that witnessing the machinations of the ego take away its power since it tends to operate at the unconscious habitual level. 
Eckhart Tolle echoes this approach. Byron Katie, in her book, Loving What Is, recommends a different approach. She says that what we need to love is what is, meaning that we are attracted what is to ourselves and the ego loves to complain, whine, and deny what it perceives is wrong somehow. By simply accepting what is, we give our power to reality and to deny the false ego reality. Eli Jackson Bear of the Enneagram Discipline has a still a different approach. He says that observation is the start, but the key is to hold steady as the ego does its thing. Don't react to the habitual pattern. But, as he says, let it burn. The implication here is that the burning of the way ego is painful, but it's not suffering. What is being burnt away is the small self. Nothing real can be destroyed. Nothing false exists. Therein lies the peace of God, to paraphrase the Course in Miracles. And, as we said before, the Course in Miracles approach is to forgive yourself and others and give up attack thoughts. This will cause the wrong thinking of the ego to be transcended. So, one of my dear friends uh, gave me something called the Five-Day Ego Cleanse, <coughs> which, I'll tell you right, which I'll tell you right now. Day one, awaken the ego. Tell yourself who you are, a job, a religion, a role you play, and totally identify with it. Day two, tell your friends your story over and over again. I'm this, I'm that, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm spiritual. Keep seeking their recognition and approval. Day three, now give yourself a headache or stomachache. Go into the pain body as deeply as you like. Good job, you're getting there now. Only two days left. The fun part of this cleanse is you can eat as much as you want, in moderation, that is. <laughs> Day four, now stir up the past really good. Get centered in your identification with anger and fear. Get fully into your precious story, into the diamond of how you have suffered. Day five, when you feel the suffering you have created for yourself, as at its greatest intensity, let it burn away the ego, letting go, letting go, letting go into the flames of forgiveness and divine love and become fully present. Take a few deep breaths and honor your beingness in the present moment. <laughs> I think this is really hysterical and pretty accurate. Okay, let's take a look real briefly at beliefs. Why does the ego have beliefs? Well, it's because without them to bridge over the chasm, the void of all there is, the ego thinks it would die, and it actually would. Everything in your experience is a product of belief, even your body. Ego and belief go together. If you had no beliefs, you would not exist in a body. Avatar, Avatar teaches that you can consciously choose what to believe, therefore changing the quality and nature of your reality. Most people have adopted belief systems from their parents, from school, from the large society, from media. This is often done without questioning the usefulness 
the usefulness of the belief to the believer. With a tool like Avatar, you can examine your beliefs, decide if they serve you or not, and literally tell the experimenter, you, what is true and what isn't, what you like and don't like, what you judge to be good or bad. You can actually discreate beliefs according to this tool of Avatar. Beliefs are to you like water is to a fish. The fish could understand the language and they would say, you would say to them, do you see the water? And the fish would say, what water? Beliefs are invisible to us. And it's, it's precisely because they consist of what we think is absolutely true. There's no reason for us to question their validity. Unless we have a tool like Avatar for what is called belief management. That's why it's very important to ask a person about their beliefs. And here's how you do it. What would a person have to believe to be having this experience? The answer to that question can lead to dysfunctional beliefs, which can be discreated. We can also examine the beliefs at a macro or societal level. Culture is just another word for shared belief systems. Societies tell stories about their inhabitants, who they are, and how their children are socialized. We believe in stories. What we are is stories. We do things of what is called character, and our characters formed by the stories we learn to live in. We figure and find stories can be thought of as maps or paradigms in which we see our purposes defined. And then the world drifts and our maps don't work anymore. Paradigms fail, frames fail, and we have to reinvent our understandings and use uh, different reasons for continuing. Useful stories, I think, are radical in that they help us see fresh, freshly. If we ignore the changing world and stick to the same story too long, we're likely to find ourselves in a great train wreck. <laughs> okay. There's a, a gentleman who has um, talked about beliefs and how important they are. Uh, which I talk about in the book on page 121. Uh, why are we in such a predicament in our, on our planet? It's precisely because we see ourselves as ego identities separate from the whole, period. He says we need to find out some ways to spread some equity around, as if the bright human mind could figure this out. Well, it hasn't over centuries of war, why should we expect it now? Uh, some people say things have improved, and but I, it certainly appears that really nothing has improved. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Yep, that's true. That's what Einstein predicted. Why do we need stories anyway? Because we are adrift in the self-centered ego state, disconnected to the larger whole, and then we're clueless about how to behave and how to interact. <laughs> this is very important. If everyone allowed the pulsations of life or spirit to rule their behavior, 
We would need cops and judges and prisons and any of that stuff. However, since we insist on living separate from the whole of life, we do need all this to keep from killing each other. At least it slows down the process. How do you use the Enneagram for spiritual development? Well, the way you do it is you begin to notice that the fixation has a hold on you and you just be still. You don't move towards anything and you don't move away from anything. This is desire and resistance. You just stay there and let it burn. Remember, nothing real can be destroyed. The key is willingness. You must be willing to go into the pain that is inherent in the false identity because at its core, it is immensely hopeless and despairing. Okay, we try to dress this up with a happy face, but if you understand what's really going on, you're dying to the false ego identities. Uh, well, <laughs> some types, for example, the three, seven, and eight, will say, but I like myself. My life is great as it is. I have a lot of fun. As a separate ego identity, say a type seven, it's possible to have what we call fun in the ego state, but it's a pale compa com uh, comparison to what's available when our identity is in the whole of life. As long as you hold on to a separate self, you are stuck in unreality. Now, the cosmic joke in all of this is you already are enlightened. You don't become enlightened when you let go of the waking dream. You just realize who you really are. That's the basic difference between the, re the dream and reality. At their core, all egos are the same. This is very interesting. All egos are the same. You bring the past with you when you incarnate, so this ego identity has a lot of momentum. Humans have thought they're separate and alone in the cosmos for millennia with only their clever minds to save them. Guess what? Doesn't do a very good job. Jackson Bear, one of my Enneagram teachers, called the ego a transinduction. Basically, it's like who you are is inside and everything else is outside. There appears to be a boundary between you and everything else. This makes us feel isolated and leads to hopeless and despair. An overused analogy is worth considering here. Be willing to live life as a butterfly instead of a caterpillar. Ask yourself, what am I holding on to? What am I resisting right now? Is this better than the experience of unconditional love? The problem with the ego is everything is about you. Self-centeredness is the ego state in a nutshell. When a loved one dies and you grieve, who are you really grieving for? You're grieving for yourself. The ego is basically a rebellion against God. The Way to unwind this is to trust your heart. Do not trust your mind. It is the home of the ego. It does not know. Life is a movie from the egoic stance. The problem is we've become to believe it's real. We become intimately involved with our characters, especially our own. 
we live the movie. But if we just turn around and look at the projector, we would find we are projecting the movie from our consciousness. We are the source of the movie. If you identify with the movie, you're trapped in it. All the sadness, pain, joy, grief, tragedy, all comes from our unhealed inner selves, our shadow. On the world stage, we can see the acting out of unhealed shadows in the president, our Congress, our court system, our allies, our defenders. Everybody's playing their role in this make-believe world. So what we've got to do is move toward living in a better dream. And if we don't stop, out of the dream altogether. This would be the state of complete enlightenment. Okay, that's enough for this one. On to the next chapter. Thank you.